I'll never forget it. It was the night I first really saw starlight. Uh, if you're a city dweller like me, maybe you've had an experience like this. Our family had gone out on a pretty adventurous vacation. It wasn't your typical touristy type thing. We decided we were going to go on a safari in South Africa, but we would fly into one side of the country and drive across to the other. And along the way, we just had to find places to stay, and we found this place out really in the middle of nowhere with a cabin you could rent that was backed up right up against wilderness. And I remember how disquieting it was as the sun started to go down, how eerily dark it started to get. And then I remember that first time I looked up and saw the stars in their fullness. More stars than you could possibly imagine, glittering up there like jewels, shining with a brightness I had never seen before. Maybe if you're a stargazer, you know this experience. You've got to go looking for a place you can see stars like that. Why is that? Why don't you see stars like that right here in Indianapolis? Well, it's because of something called light pollution. You know, all of our stoplights and billboards, and yes, your neighbor's annoying glow-in-the-dark Santa in their front lawn, all of that stuff conspires together. It chases away the darkness, and it makes the glow of the stars dim away. I got wondering as I was preparing this week, why is it that so many of us struggle during Christmas spiritually? I mean, think about it. This whole holiday is built around Jesus coming to earth. It's a time where we sing songs about him. We probably come to church more than we normally do. And yet, we can go through the whole season, end up all the way to New Year's, and we're worse off spiritually than when we started. Why is that? I wonder if we've gotten pretty good at chasing away the darkness of our own soul, so much so that the glow of the bright star that's Jesus starts to dim. Maybe this is how it plays out in your life. You go from holiday party to holiday party. You give presents. You sing songs you've sung a million times. But somewhere in there, you are just missing that worship of Jesus that used to be present in your life. How do you avoid that? How do you keep that from happening to you, and how do you keep your wonder? Our passage before us this morning is going to show us that we need to look straight into the darkness of our own souls. See it for what it is. If we're going to see Christ for who he is. Unless we look at our souls and see them for what they truly are, we will never see the true king for who he truly is. And we're going to see this in three sections as we move through this very familiar passage this morning. My hope is that familiarity doesn't shut us down, that we will feel the weight of the darkness of the souls of the people in this passage and of our own souls as we go through it. And we'll also see the great light of Jesus. We'll we'll see that in the first two sections in the darkness of the souls. We'll see first the true king ignored and the true king hunted. And then finally we will see the glory of the king. We'll see the king victorious. First, let's look at verses 1 through 6 and see the true king ignored. Now, Matthew is a book particularly written to show that Jesus is the Son of God. That is to say that he is the promised king of Israel, 
the promised king to reign over them that they have been waiting for with expectation. With that in mind, it's particularly unusual who it is that the cast of characters that comes looking for Jesus in verses 1 and 2. We're told that a group of wise men from the east saw a star in the sky and came looking. Now, our layers of Christmas tradition don't help us to really understand how strange of a thing this is. Wise men, maybe your translation calls them magi, maybe it calls them kings. Maybe you're thinking in your head of a particular Christmas song at this moment, is the sound of three kings. It doesn't say there's three of them, and uh, the description we have, the, the word for uh, wise men or, or magi, is where we get our word for magician. These likely would have been men from somewhere like modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. They would have been practitioner of ancient arts, of looking up to the heavens and looking to the skies and looking for the movement of stars to figure out what's happening here on earth. These men would have been at least twice removed from the people you'd expect looking to come looking for the Jewish king. They're not born into the right families, and they're certainly not practicing the right profession. And yet somehow, they find something in the stars that they interpret to mean that a great king has come, and they better come find him. So come find him, they do. They come from a long way off, and they end up in a very dangerous place indeed, in the court of Herod the Great. Now, Herod did not get the title great because he was a particularly likable individual. Um, you would have a really hard time finding anyone that would call Herod an ally in the ancient East. He was known to be ruthless, paranoid, bloodthirsty, and politically shrewd. Herod had come to power um, under the Roman rulership. He was appointed the king over the Judea area. Uh, he had to kill his way to the top. Even after he was given authority, he had to go and conquer those lands. He was known for when he felt threatened for lashing out with just immediate and total finality. So much so that even uh, he had two of his sons and one of his wives killed. There was one Caesar that quipped a, a saying that you were better off being Herod's dog than his son. That's the type of guy he was. So you can imagine these three, or maybe not three, these ancient astrologers showing up in Herod's court asking, where is it that this new king of the Jews has been born? You can imagine everyone's expectations. And that's not the type of question you ask if you're particularly attached to your head, if you get my drift. Verse 3 tells us how Herod reacted. Look with me. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I love that. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, you can tell when we're troubled, maybe by our facial expressions, maybe by our body language, maybe your stomach is your tell. You can tell Herod's troubled because people start dying. So what's Herod going to do when these three pagan foreigners come, come up asking where this king that has his authority is? Well, the second phrase there, all Jerusalem was troubled with him, clues you in what people are thinking. 
This is the time for Herod to show who Herod the Great really is and start killing some people. That's what makes what comes next so surprising. Instead of just killing these guys outright and anyone that heard this supposed prophecy, instead, he plays along. He gathers up the religious leaders of the day, brings in the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, where is the Messiah supposed to come from? Now, to understand why this is so unusual, beyond the fact that Herod just likes killing people, you got to understand the chief priests and the scribes, they, they go together like oil and water. They were two vying political parties back in the day. Uh, the, the chief priests would be the equivalent of like the worship leaders. They were in charge of the, the temple and the, the, the worship there, but they were also very political in their aspirations. And, and then the scribes were like the lawyers and the ethicists of the day. And they were in this constant power struggle. And ancient writers tell us that both of these parties were considered to be corrupt by this point in history. Herod gets both of these enemy parties in the room and asks them a very direct biblical question. And the shocking thing is, they give him a clear, consistent answer. Right there in verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written, and then they quote from Micah 5.2. Now, this is shocking. To get them to agree on anything is one thing. To get them to give a clear, accurate, biblical answer, and both have the same answer, that's, that's huge. But what's most shocking and most telling is what we don't hear from them. These are the people who hold all the keys to God's word, all the keys to spirituality in their day. And the next time we hear from them in Matthew's gospel is 30 years later. They're not interested in going and finding this Messiah where they know, even though they know what town he's supposed to come in. They're not as interested as these pagan astrologers who come from a far land And they're not even as interested as Herod, who just wants to kill him. The people who should be most interested shrug shrug them off, wave them off with a dismissive hand wave, and go on their merry way. Friends, there is a warning here for all of us that have grown up in the church around the Bible. It is very possible to be very religious and to be very uninterested in the King of Kings. You could come to church every Sunday, have a great notebook which you take copious notes of listening to great sermons, even in a place like this. You could write down things that it says, interesting factoids, even things that it says that people should be doing in their lives. You could know all that backward and forward. But friend, if you are the same person week to week, if there is no change within your life, it's quite possible that you just have a layer of religion on top of a darkness within your soul. Or what about... If you feel yourself slipping, there was a one point where you just loved everything about being here in worship for the right reasons, but now you just like being around people and that shared sense of purpose and community. There's something desperately missing from all that, and that thing is the king of kings who's supposed to be shining brightest in your heart. Friends, it's very possible for us, even people in this sanctuary, in College Park, North Indy, to be very religious and to have no interest in Jesus. 
If you feel any of those dynamics in your heart this morning, it'll do no good for you to just try to gloss it over with a gallop of uh, a Christmas cheer, to just pretend it's not so and move on and think of merry thoughts. God in his kindness is revealing this to you. Do something about it. This same king who you're ignoring is the king who loves to restore broken sinners. He will gladly help you to restore your wonder. If you would just call it for what it is, call it a sin. Ask him to help you. Ask him to turn your attention from all the other things that consume your mind and your soul and to turn it back to the true, bright, shining star that should have your attention, to Jesus himself. The chief priests, the scribes, they show us a darkness in the soul, a lamentable, evil darkness. And yet we have a shade darker to go still. Our second section shows us not just this king ignored, it shows us a king hunted. This is in verses 7 through 18. Now at this point, Herod goes into full threat neutralizing mode. And let's remember, Herod is really good at what he's done. At this point, he's about 70. He has lived through a lot of threats on his life, a lot of people trying to take his throne, and so he knows his playbook well. So immediately, he goes into information gathering mode. Right there in verse 7, it says that he summons the, the wise men, the magi, and he ascertains for them secretly what, what time the star had appeared. So he wants to figure out when this star showed up. Might be useful information. Then he goes into deception mode, verse 8. Then he sends them to Bethlehem and says, Go and search diligently, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In other words, go be my agents, figure out where he is, then come back and tell me, and I'll go take care of him. This is a king that knows. Knows that there's a loose end here. If he doesn't tie it up, it's going to get tied around his neck. So he's going to do what he does best, cut it off. So what's Herod's, uh, what, how, how does it end up working? Well, uh, I don't know if the wise men were just particularly gullible or if they were just having a bad day. My guess is that Herod's just really good at this. He's like the consummate survivor of the uh, blood sport of ancient politics. I mean, this guy is good at what he does, and it looks like the magi, the wise men, they buy it. They buy it hook, line, and sinker. We're, we're told that they go off on his little mission looking for Jesus. And I think we should come to the conclusion that if not for the events that come next, Herod probably would win. But there are some events that come next. And those events are God intervenes three times. Three times to make sure both of these wise men make it where they're supposed to go and that Herod doesn't get his hands on Jesus. So the first way that we see that happen is the star reappears. It guides them back to uh, where Mary and Joseph are, now in a house, not in the stable they once were in. They, they get there, and there's this, this beautiful scene. They find, at this point, probably the toddler Jesus. And just imagine this moment. I mean, these unfit pagan astrologers coming before this child king, 
this wonder and joy that's described in their heart, bowing down before him, opening these treasures fit for a king and worshiping as best they could. That, that must have been an incredible sight to see. But it wasn't one that lasted. Because almost immediately, we're told that in the night, they're told they have to go back a different way so Herod doesn't find them. God intervenes a second time. He sends the wise men in a way Herod won't find them so that they won't find out where Jesus is. And then he intervenes a third time, sending an angel to tell Mary and Joseph to get across the border to Egypt, close enough but out of reach so Herod can't get to them. Why all of this intervention? Well, it's because Herod is about to show us just how dark a soul can get. Herod finds out that the wise men duped him. And then in verse 16, we see just how evil a man can be. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, becoming furious. When he saw he had been becoming furious, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Herod, Herod the Great, responds like the little tyrant that he is. He does something straight out of the playbook of evil men with power back for millennia. When he feels threatened and he feels like he's out of options, he gets violent. He sends his men the six or so miles to Bethlehem. And, and don't let the familiarity of this story blind you from the horror of this. He indiscriminately wipes out a whole generation of children. Maybe you've seen firsthand in your own family or a family you love the utter wreckage of a child being ripped from a family. You know there's nothing that can really fix that. Imagine a whole generation, all the babies in a whole town and area, gone in an instant because of an insecure, evil little old man who refused to bow before the king of kings. It should turn our stomachs. Yet as much as we should look at Herod and say, this is an evil man, should terrify us even more because we should see ourselves in Herod. In the 1960s, there was a man who survived the Nazi camp of Auschwitz during the Holocaust. His name was Yehil Denur. He had the very difficult task of facing down the architect of his suffering. They set up a trial in Israel after they caught uh, a man named Adolf Eichmann, the man who designed those prison camps, really the, the head of the snake for that unbelievable genocide. Denur was asked to come and testify against Eichmann. In a moment of high drama that you can still go on YouTube and watch, Denur came into the courtroom and was given an opportunity to speak. He started rambling and pretty soon just collapsed into a sobbing mess. Wasn't able to say anything of substance. People wondered, was he just so overcome with rage towards this man that he just couldn't speak? 
Or maybe he had a, like a post-traumatic stress disorder type thing. He started recapitulating all the things that had happened to him over and over again, and it just broke down. Later, he gave an interview to 60 Minutes, and he described what happened. He said he went into the courtroom expecting to see a man that would be easy to hate, a monster. But what he saw terrified him even more. He said he saw a man just like himself. These are his exact words. I realized that evil is endemic to the human condition. That any one of us could commit the same atrocities. Here's the clincher. Eichmann is in all of us. Eichmann is in all of us. Which means Herod is in all of us. Each of us in our little thrones, when we feel threatened in the right way, we will lash out with a violent fury. Eichmann is in all of us. This is what the, the Bible teaches when it calls us rebel sinners that refuse to bow the knee before the true king of kings. Let me, let me show you how this works out in your life. Maybe you start to feel threatened at work. And in an instant, you are just right in the middle of a place you have no business being office politics, trying to make sure it's someone else's skin on the line and not yours. Maybe it comes out in your family. You, you feel like your kids are getting out of control and you start to get desperate. You start using guilt and maybe even some lies, some deception to, to try and manipulate them to regain control. Or maybe even this week, in, in rage, you said something to someone you love that even as you said it, it felt like someone else was talking. Friends, in that moment, the Herod inside you was peeking out. It's no use pretending this isn't the case. It'll do no good to look away, try to chase away this darkness with a little glib Christmas cheer. We've got to see it for what it is. There's a Herod in each of us. Each of us have a Herod's heart. But the good news is we serve a king that's in the business of giving new hearts to Herod-hearted people. That if we will call our sin for what it is, we will find the glorious King Jesus more than capable of both arresting our attention and filling our hearts with wonder, but also turning our little sniveling attempts at control, keeping our tiny thrones and get us down on our knees to worship him the way we should. So maybe this week, maybe this week you admit to Jesus that you have started to allow the Herod inside you to take over. Maybe you ask him, Lord, would you just work within me a, a clean heart again? I need you to help me get off of my throne and bow down before you, yours. I, I have lost my wonder because I have tried to be king over my own life again. Maybe you do this by just spending a little time naming specific areas this week. Specific areas that you know he's not been pleased with you. Bring them before his throne of grace and see if he won't change them. Give you mercy and grace as you need it. There's a Herod in each of us, which means there is a darkness within each of us. 
It'll do us no good to look away from it. We need to see the darkness in our souls for what it is. Because then we can see the light of Christ for what it truly is. We can see the king for who he is. And that's where the third section brings us to. This is in verses 19 through 21. We saw the the true king ignored and the true king hunted. And now we see the true king victorious. I love the way verse 19 tells us of Herod's demise. Three words. Three words. And Herod died. Herod the Great. And Herod died. That's it. Herod the Terrible. Herod the genocidal, Herod the, I have a plan for every single contingency, Machiavellian schemer, and Herod died. He ends up the same way every little tyrant, every king who refuses to get off his throne ends up six feet under waiting for judgment day. Herod dies, but there's someone in this passage who doesn't. The true king. Jesus has been preserved by God. He is the true king of God's people. No one's going to take his life from him. He's going to go on to fulfill every single one of God's purposes. He and his family, they come back from Egypt. They settle. Under God's protection, he grows up and becomes the preacher that goes on to preach of this kingdom of God. But you know what? This won't be the last tyrant that's going to try and come and take this king down. Remember those scribes and chief priests? 30 years later, they're going to stop ignoring him and figure out that maybe Herod had the right idea. And they're going to nail him up on a Roman criminal's cross. They think by doing that, they're going to be able to steal his throne and protect theirs. But really, they're not taking a life. The only life that's taken is the one he gave. See, this is the king that stepped down off of his throne in heaven to come down and rescue Herod-hearted sinners like you and me. He's the king that, unlike every other king who ends up six feet under and stays there until judgment day, was raised to new life and then was raised a second time to the throne in heaven where his father sits. He is the king that now calls you to come and bow down before him. And give him all that he is due. Unbox your treasures before him because he is worthy of your praise. He is King Jesus. There's only one rightful, true king. And there's only one rightful, true response. We have this beautiful picture of these wise men or magi that come to Jesus. They they don't understand everything, but they understand enough that he is worthy of their praise. So they they bow down before him. They they give him these treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh and treasures fit for a king. And they lay them down before the true treasure. Friend, maybe this week, that's the posture you need to have to regain your wonder. Maybe in response to this king, you find something that you really want, but that you could do without, and in Jesus' name, you go and you bless someone else with it or with the money from it. Maybe you take your precious time, you carve out just a small chunk of it to just bask in his presence, the way your soul so desperately needs to bow down before his throne of this glorious king. Or maybe this week, maybe even today, For the first time, you need to come 
and bow before this king to know him as your Lord and Savior. Friend, if you're here and you're knowingly not a Christian, maybe someone invited you or maybe you just decided you wanted to come to church around Christmas, I'm so glad you're here. I just want you to to know that the idea that you can live your life as the king over it, as the ultimate one who decides right and wrong and the direction it should go, it's a project that's doomed for failure. I speak from experience. If it hasn't let you down and you haven't started to see the darkness in your own soul yet, just wait, it's coming. But the good news is there is a king here who has willingly made a way for you. He will gladly welcome you to before his throne to bow down before him and as best you know, to ask his forgiveness. And he is eager and willing and more than capable of giving you what you need. You don't need to clean up. You don't need a credential. You just need to come. Friend, if that's you this morning, maybe you find a, a Christian friend to talk to. Maybe you come up front. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Don't leave without seeing the glorious star of Jesus this morning. It's the only thing that really matters. We've seen that the darkness in our own souls, it's there. And the only way you can see the light of Jesus for for what it is, is to see the darkness of your soul for what it is. In seminary, I uh, got introduced to a guy named John Newton. You probably know him. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, Newton wrote a lot of hymns. And um, one of them that I came across, I was so excited to see that uh, Sovereign Grace actually put to new music. Uh, You can go online and look it up. It's called The Look. And in it, um, Newton imagines if he could go to that day, that dark day, when Jesus was crucified on Calvary. And before Jesus died, if he could make eye contact with Jesus in that final moment, what would go through his mind? What I love about this hymn and I love about Newton is he never lost that wonder of understanding the own darkness in his soul and being amazed by the glory of Jesus. Listen to the words of this hymn he wrote. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word I spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Thus while his death my sin displays for all the world to view, Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled. 
that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Brothers and sisters, look into the darkness of your own soul. See it for what it is. So you can look to the bright shining light of King Jesus and see him for who he is. Fall down in wonder and worship. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we are so easy to have our hearts turned away from you, to be distracted by you, to have other loves take our attention off of you. We're so easy to act as if we are the kings on our own little thrones. We are Herod-hearted. We would do anything to protect our little kingdoms, even if it meant missing out on you, the true glorious king. Would you help us this morning? Help us to get off our little thrones and fall down before yours. Give us a new heart. Fill us with wonder again. We pray these things in your name. Amen.